Do you know any lost boys? Now, I'm asking that question in church, so granted, most of us may think, oh, lost boys, you know, boys who have not yet found saving faith in Jesus Christ. And naturally, that would be a good way of defining lost boys. But you may hear the word lost boys, and you may think of Peter Pan. I don't know. Maybe you remember the lost boys from Peter Pan. Or, you know, if you're a real movie person, you may hear the word lost boys and think of Jason Patrick and Corey Haim. I don't know. But the reality is, is there's this concept of lost boys today in our, our culture that is very unique. Tom Nichols is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and also the Harvard Extension School. He wrote an article this week about the lost boys. And he defined the lost boys and described them as failed to launch young men with dangerous social grudges. This is what he wrote. Their adolescence, which should have been shed earlier, has stayed with them like a worn t-shirt or a beat-up pair of shoes that they couldn't bring themselves to throw away. They do not move on to the responsibilities of adulthood. We are seeing more and more of these lost boys in our society. And we are seeing more and more of their immaturity lived out in our culture. Their immaturity lived out with foolishness or with evil. And sadly, even times we see it tragically lived out in our culture. But you don't always have to have a dangerous social grudge to be failing to launch. What does it mean to fail to launch? Well, if you are a plane and you fail to launch, you fail to get off the ground. You don't get up in the air. You fail to do what you have accomplished. So if you are a young man that's failing to launch, it means that you are not really becoming a young man. You're not actually making the transition into manhood. Maybe you still live at home. You never move out of your parents' house. Maybe you spend all day not working, but, you know, watching TV and, and surfing the Internet and playing video games. That's all you do. Maybe that's the kind of young man some are. Or maybe he's a young man who actually moved out of his folks' house. He got a job, got his own place, and at nights and on the weekends, he spends all of his time watching TV and surfing the net and playing video games. Or maybe he moved out of mom and dad's house. He got a pretty decent job. He really even went out and started a family. But his attitude and his actions, the way he makes decisions, are still like a selfish little boy in everything that he does. Or maybe he moved out and he got a pretty decent job and he bought a house and he started a family. But he's spending all of his time trying to relive his youth. Forcing his kids to play all the same sports that he played and, and carry on the very same vacation traditions. Actually, all the exact family traditions. Everything has to be exactly the same. They are young men who are failing to launch. So what do we do? How do we respond to this established culture and this growing culture of young men who are not launching into life. Tom Nichols went on to write this. I am at a loss for a solution because the answer lies in some kind of long-term restoration of social order among young men. I don't know how to do that. 
The multiple horses of promiscuity, affluence, even among poor kids. I just want to clarify what that means and what, at least what I think he means. It means that the poorest people in our country are rich compared to the poorest people in other countries. It means that even the poor in our land are rich compared to other areas of the world. The statistics say that 95% of the world today, get that figure, 95% of the world will hope to get one meal today. That means you are in the 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. (laughs) If you thought you were having a rough time financially this week, I just thought I'd encourage you. You're in the 5% of the wealthiest people in the world this morning. He says the multiple horses of promiscuity, affluence, even among poor kids, permissiveness, violent and ghettoized teen culture, and perpetual immaturity are so far out of the barn now and so entrenched in American life that I have no idea how to stop their corrosive influence. He goes on to say older men can no longer mentor younger men in any meaningful numbers. There are not enough of us, and many of us are reluctant to engage in such work in any case. The traditional venues for male socialization, including marriage, have mostly vanished. Nor can mentors or schools fight the epidemic of divorce and pop culture and the media and the overall assaults on the creation of the kind of family life that channels men toward creation rather than destruction. And then he closes with this thought. There has to be a sea change in social attitudes, but I'm stumped about how to make that happen in a nation as self-indulgent and as averse to hard introspection as ours is now. Wow. I appreciate his bluntness. It's a little depressing though, right? Well, we have this problem and there's no answer anywhere. Well, is there an answer? I mean, is there a, is there a response we have to this dramatic shift and this continued shift in our culture? Well, there actually is a response, there is an answer, and there is a solution, if I would dare call it that. It's not the kind of answer, though, that's really popular in culture. It's not the kind of answer that you can take and easily develop into a 12-step program to implement in the workplace or in the school system. It's not the kind of answer that you can measure just by the number of young men that might show up at youth group during the week at church. Nor is it the kind of answer that you can measure just with salary, benefits, or maybe yard of the month. But it is the answer. It is the solution. At least it's the truth that God gives for our hearts and our minds. So what is that response? What is that answer? Look with me at Titus 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. The Apostle Paul has been writing to his friend Titus, and he's writing to him because he's wanting to help Titus help Christians like me and you be Christians. He's wanting to help them live for Jesus on a daily basis. And so he's been given some instructions. We've looked at him the last few weeks. He had some instructions for older men and for older women, and and last week the younger women. And today we look at the younger men. And he begins with the word, likewise. Meaning that, generally speaking, all the stuff that Paul said to the older men and the older women and the younger women, those things also, generally speaking, apply to the younger men. So what were those things? Well, they're all in verses 2 through 6, and I'm going to fly over them really, really, really fast. A young man needs to be temperate. He needs to not be ruled by an appetite for anything on this earth. 
He needs to be dignified. He needs to be serious about the things of God, and he needs to be serious about the important things in life. He needs to be sensible. Now, this is the adjective form. In a minute, we're going to look in our verse today at the verb form. But the adjective means that he lets the truth of the Bible define and guide his opinions and his attitude. A young man needs to be sound in faith. He needs to understand the message of the Bible, and he needs to take that message, and it needs to be applied to how he lives and how he thinks and how he talks. He also needs to be sound in love. As he grows older, he needs to become more kind and more compassionate, not more rude and more arrogant. He also needs to be sound in perseverance. He needs to trust God even when everything is falling apart, maybe especially when things are falling apart. He also needs to be reverent in his behavior. He needs to, to carry himself in a way that would honor and please God. He needs to not be a malicious gossip. We go, oh, that was just for the women. That's not for the guys. <laughs> man, oh, man, some of the biggest gossips I ever met in my life were men. The whole idea is this. Don't be like Satan. That's what the word literally means, diabolos. Don't be like Satan. Don't be throwing lies and sin and conflict in between you and other people or in between other people. A young man doesn't need to do that. A young man doesn't need to be enslaved to much wine. He doesn't need to be addicted or obsessed with anything. Not alcohol, not drugs, not food, not sports, not money, not cars, not anything. There's nothing he needs to be obsessed with in this life. His obsession needs to be the glory of God. He needs to teach what is good. He needs to think and talk like somebody that has said the gospel is the greatest good news that I have. That's all that I know that is good. If he's married, he needs to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. If he has kids, he needs to love his kids in a way that his greatest desire for his kids is to have the curse of sin removed from their lives. He also needs to be pure. He needs to be trustworthy. He needs to be the kind of guy that you know you can count on to honor his commitments. His commitments to God, his commitments to his family, his commitments at work, really anything in life. You know that you can trust him. He also needs to be a worker at home. Wait a minute, that was just in the, the stuff for the ladies. No. Doesn't matter who you are, young man, old man, you need to be a part of making sure that your family thinks the word home is a good word. You need to do your part in that. And then he also needs to be kind. He needs to be the kind of guy that people would come to, not try to avoid when they see him coming. He needs to be kind. He needs to be encouraging. So those are all the things that Paul's laid out for older men and for older women and for younger women, but they also, generally speaking, apply to the younger men as well. So who are these younger men? Well, Paul didn't give us an age. If we want to pull a number out of the air, we could say maybe 50 and under would cover younger men. Maybe for our generation and our time, we might say 40 and under. That might be a little more helpful. But it's not really an age. See, the idea here is that a, a younger man is still experiencing some things for the very first time in his life. Some experiences he has not had yet. He may still live at home with his parents. Or maybe he moved out about 10 years ago. Or maybe a little less or maybe a little more. He might be in school still. He might be finishing up school. He might be single. He might be married. He might be starting his first career job. Or he may be a dad for the first time. Regardless of who he is and where he is and what age he is, though, he should be pursuing launch. 
That should be part of what's happening in his life. If he's 8 years old or if he's 28 years old, he needs to be in the process of, of doing this thing that Paul writes here, and that's being sensible. Being sensible. This is the verb form that he uses here. It's, it's a combination of two words, and the two words are to save and the mind. And so Paul's advice to younger men is this. You need to have a saved mind. In other words, you need to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the most important thing in a young man's life is not having great grades. It's not having great athletic ability. It's not having great hair. It's not having great manners. It's not having a great work ethic. Those things are good. But the most important thing that a young man needs in his life is a relationship with the great Savior. That's it. That's the most important thing. There is one thing in life you can absolutely count on. One thing that is sure. J.I. Packer put it this way. One day, with or without warning, quietly or painfully, life is going to stop. You can count on death. You can count on dying. Man. So glad I came to church today. Man, I'm just so encouraged now. Thank you for the death message, Dal. That's wonderful. But don't miss the picture here. If you're a young man, you don't think you're going to die. You think death is something that's way, way, way down the road. It doesn't really have any connection with you. But see, the truth of the matter is, it would only take me a few seconds to pull out my phone and bring up the news from just our area this week and find out that's not true. See, death can come at any time, and death can come at any age. Now, I'm not trying to unnecessarily scare you by any means, but I would say this. If you're a young man and you are obsessed with grades, or you're obsessed with sports, or you're obsessed with video games, or you're obsessed with girls, or money, or cars, or hunting, or fishing, or golfing, or hiking, or whatever it may be, I just want you to know that there is coming a day when none of those things will exist. They won't exist. None of them will be around. We hear all the time, maybe you've heard from a, a parent or a grandparent, maybe a teacher, somebody, an adult, they say, well, buddy, you just don't understand the real world. Let me tell you something. Death is the realest real world ever. It's as real as it gets. And being separated from God, being separated from all that's good and holy and happy for eternity is as real as the Jordans and the rainbows and the sparrows on your feet. It's not some mystical, religious, fanciful thing that you hear about church every now and then. It's the actual words of Jesus. This is what he said in John 3.16. This is from the Amplified Version. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten unique son so that whoever believes in, trusts in, clings to, and relies on him shall not perish, come to destruction, and be lost, but have eternal, everlasting life. Are you believing in and clinging to Jesus as your only source of rescue and escape from sin and death and eternal judgment? If you're a young man and you are believing in such a way, press on. And take your faith in Christ and pour it into your grades. 
and pour it into your sports and pour it into your choices when it comes to video games or your choice of a wife or the way you use your money or your car or your hunting or your fishing or anything else. In other words, let your faith in Jesus Christ actually be your faith in Jesus Christ. Let it be a part of all that you do. Do everything that you can to the best of your ability for the glory of God. But if you are not believing in and clinging to Jesus Christ as the only source of rescue and escape from sin and death and eternal judgment, then I plead with you today to believe and to repent and to follow. There is no greater hope than the hope found in Jesus Christ. John Preston was a Puritan clergyman. He was also the headmaster at a college. He got real sick, and he was close to death. Somebody asked him, they said, so are you afraid of dying? This was his response. No, I shall change my place, but I shall not change my company. Young man, young woman, older man, older woman, is that your confidence today? Are you in relationship with Jesus Christ? Or put another way, would Jesus say you're in his company? Are you sensible? Meaning, are you, are you saved? Is your heart and your mind and your soul, are they, are they saved? Are they really following after Jesus Christ? I think it's really interesting that Paul has all these other instructions for the other folks. And he gives the young guys one word. I guess they had ADD back then too. I don't know. They just One word. I'm going to do one word. Just one word. But it's a pretty big word, right? Saving faith in Jesus Christ. A saved mind. That is what's primary. And why is that so important? Well, how you think defines how you live. Your beliefs lead to your behavior. And so what's going on in your mind is kind of a really, really big deal. And so there needs to be some sensible self-control over your mind. What does that mean? John Benton put it this way. Self-control can be thought of as the ability to discern and see the importance of the godly goal in a situation and to choose that goal over and against competing desires and concerns. That's a huge, gigantic definition of self-control. It means on any given moment, you're sitting in this moment, and there's basically two goals. There's this goal, which could be anything. It could be good. It could be noble. It could be evil. It could be bad. It could be what you want to do. It could be what your parents want you to do. It could be what your boss wants to do. I mean, anything could be this goal. And then this goal is the godly goal. And so self-control is in that moment seeing both goals and saying, got to go here. This this is the goal. And if I pursue this goal, then what needs to happen with that goal will happen the way it needs to, regardless of the outcome. It's pursuing the godly goal. This is the daily tennis match of our life, is it not? On one side of the court, we have sin and pride And on the other side of the court, we have honoring God. And man, sometimes there's some good volleys. Man, I mean, the ball is going back and forth and back and forth because we're fighting, we're struggling. We want to win that point, and we want to honor God. But if we're honest, most days, sin and pride just serve aces, and we lose the point immediately. 
I wish I could convince me of this. So since I can't convince me of this, I know I can't convince you of this, but I'll share it and we'll beg the Holy Spirit to help it make sense to us. God's ways are good for you. <laughs> we believe that mentally, but we are not convinced of it because we, we don't really follow through on it. But it, it is so true. God's ways are good for your heart. They're good for your soul. They're good for your family. They're good for work and school and every other moment of life. His ways are good. His honor is good. And so if anything, there's a sense in what Paul might be saying to us today. Man, you really need to improve your tennis game. You, you really need to work hard at being sensible. You need to work hard about letting the truth about Jesus shape your opinions and your attitudes. Listen, in this state, in the last few weeks, we've had plenty of opportunities to let the gospel shape how we think or to ignore the gospel. The gospel is the hill we die on. The cross is the only thing at the top of a hill for a Christian. And so it feeds our mind period, exclamation point. The truth about Jesus is what feeds our attitudes. It's what feeds our opinions. To be sensible means that we are obsessed with growing to a deeper level of knowing this God that created us instead of just growing to a deeper level of winning the next level of our game. To be sensible means that we're more obsessed with flexing godly character then obsessed with flexing our biceps at the pool or the beach or the lake. The whole picture that we have here is to train your mind not in what you think is good. Not to train your mind in what you want. Or even maybe what your grandparents or your parents taught you. Because that may or may not have anything to do with the gospel. But to train your minds with what's above. To feed your minds with the good things of God to please God, to honor God, to make God famous. When that happens, your soul will get what it needs. Your mind will get what it needs. Your heart will get what it needs. So what does that look like? David grew up to be one of the greatest kings that ever lived on the earth. For most of his life, he was obsessed with the godly goal. He was obsessed with honoring God for most of his life. But he had moments in life, some pretty huge big moments, where he was obsessed with his own sin and his own pride. But it was when he was a boy, it was when he was a young man, that the concept of honoring God and pursuing the godly goal clicked with him. One time when he was in his probably mid to late 20s, he had a situation. He had already been promised that he was going to be the king. But he was not yet king. And King Saul hated David. He was trying to kill him. And so David and one of his leaders, Abishai, went down to where Saul was encamped for the night. And, and they found Saul sacked out on the ground. I mean, cutting some Z's. He was fast asleep. And his spear was stuck in the ground next to him. Wide open. So Abishai says to David, he goes, oh, let me go down there. I'll take this guy out. Let me run my spear through him, and, and we won't have to worry about him anymore. Here's his chance. Here's his opportunity. And the Bible says, David said, no, we're not doing that. 
That's not what we're doing. You know, that's not best. That's not what would honor God, and, and this isn't the moment. This was his chance. This was his opportunity. He could have everything that, that he was already promised. He could have it right then. But here's what David did. In that moment, when he could take the bull by the horns, when he could make something for himself, where he could look out for number one, in that moment, David stopped and said, I have, I've got this goal, and then I've got the godly goal. Abishai, we're going here. This, this is where we're going. We're going to the godly goal because that is the only goal that brings hope and peace and truth and justice and satisfaction. See, that picture right there, maybe another way of putting that, is that's what it means to be a real man. You can erase every definition you've ever heard of being a man if it didn't sound like that. Real manhood is honoring God. Real manhood is, is seeking for the glory of God. It's, it's striving to live for the glory of God. It's making your decisions in such a way that God is going to get most of the attention. That's what it means to be a real man, to honor God, to seek the glory of God, to live for the glory of God, and to make decisions in such a way that, that God's the one who's going to get the attention and the fame. In other words, that's what it means to be sensible. There's another great king that has another picture of what it means to be sensible for us, Solomon. Solomon wasn't just any old great king either, was he? He was the wealthiest and the wisest king ever. And this is what he said, Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Right, now, now note, this is not advice from the third shift manager at the Circus Burger Barn, okay? This is advice from the wealthiest and wisest man who ever lived on the earth. So out of his power and out of his influence and out of his riches, he says this, it's better to be patient than to be quick to be angry. It's better to be patient than to be easily aggravated. It's better to be patient than to push people around verbally and physically trying to get your way. That's the advice from the wealthiest and wisest man ever. And then the second part's not much different. He says, you know what, it's, it's better to be able to manage your heart and your soul and your mind and your character. It's better to manage those things than to be president than to be a king, than to be a CEO, than to be a, a military general, than to be the quarterback of the Super Bowl champions. He says it's, it's better. The ancient teacher Cicero said this, fewer men are found who conquer their own lust than that overcome the armies of enemies. I watched a documentary this week on, on Harry Truman. It's great. One of the things that throughout the documentary they kept saying was, Harry Truman came from nowhere. He was nobody. No man, nowhere, nobody, and he became president. See, what Cicero is saying this, almost anybody can become president. 
Almost anybody can win a game. Almost anybody can win a battle. Almost anybody can win an election. Almost anybody can be a wealthy businessman. But there are just a few who can manage their character. There's just a few men who can be real men of character. Just a few. Men, can I just offer on my behalf and all of our behalf, man, let's be those few. Man, let's be those few. Men who manage their character. Men who pursue their character. Let me just go ahead and say for all of us, we're probably all butchering it right now, all right? Just to let all of us off the hook, you know? Like sometimes we hear, oh gosh, Dal says I gotta be perfect, great. No, let me just let us all off the hook, man. We're probably all butchering our character in some way, shape, or form. But man, let's just stop today. Let's just, let's just work hard to not keep doing it. And let's be part of the few that seek to manage our character. And here's why. Because for generations and generations and generations, to our shame, young men have not always had a lot of sensible men to look up to, even in the church. They haven't had a lot of men really sold out for Jesus to look up to. John MacArthur says it this way. To convince a man God can save, I need to show him a man he saved. To convince a man that God can give hope, I need to show him a man with hope. To convince a man that God can give peace, joy, love, I need to show him a man with peace, joy, and love. To convince a man that God can give complete and total and utter satisfaction, I need to show him a satisfied man. The way we lay down the platform is by living the life. The greatest and most powerful element of evangelism is not technique, it's not a marketing strategy, it's not cultural relevance, it is the power of transformed lives. That, that is huge. It means we can come here on Sunday morning and do something that is impressive and it will mean nothing if we leave and do the opposite. You see, the world doesn't just need to hear a message of transformation. It needs to see people who have been transformed. It doesn't just need to hear that God saves. They really need to see that, that God has saved us, that we're a, a saved person. But in our culture, we, we seem in Christianity to forget that that's the goal. Melissa Edgington is a young wife and mother. She has three kids, 10 and under. She wrote an article this week that I absolutely love. Some of you have probably seen it. It's been floating around on social media. And the article was titled this, It's Okay for Kids to Be Bored During Church. And I love this. This is what she says. Not everything at church has to be a big show or a major production. Let's stop living in fear of our kids having a single moment of boredom. Take them to church. Let them sit. See how the truths they hear work their way into their tiny hearts and watch God work through the preaching of his word. Bless her heart, she's crazy, right? No way that could ever work. What? Give them God, live for God, and let God work. That's a terrible church vision. That's a terrible mission statement. That would never work. Actually, it would, right? It sounds overly simple, but it's true, right? Show them God, 
Show them a life that's been changed by God. And, and then watch God work. Listen, our young people do not need more morals. They don't need more traditions. They don't need more fun. They don't need more lights. They don't need more smoke. They don't need more t-shirts. What they need is the gospel. What they need is this story we have about our Savior, Jesus. They need to see him, not just in word, but also in deed. They need the gospel. John Angel, sorry, John Angel James preached a sermon on Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Before he preached, he said this to his audience. I have been influenced by a painful conviction which I would be glad to have disproved that there was scarcely ever a period when such admonitions as those which I shall deliver on this present occasion were more needed by people of your gender and age, meaning young men. Without pretending to say that the youth of this generation are more corrupt than those of former times, I will assert that their moral interest are now exposed from various cases to very imminent peril. In other words, he was saying, man, our, our culture today, I don't know where it's going. Man, I don't know what's happening to our world today. John James said those words on January 4th, 1824. 191 years ago. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. It's just new to us because this is when we are alive. But there's nothing new under the sun. It's not more morally corrupt now than it was before. Listen, there has never, ever, ever been a golden Christian age in any nation, in any country, anywhere, except one. Garden of Eden. And it didn't last a long time. But for every generation from the garden until now, and from every generation from here on out, we still have the same message. We still have the same hope. God saves. God saves. That's, that's the message. I love how Paul put it to the church at Corinth. For I deliver as of the fifth or sixth thing I thought you might need to hear. No. For I deliver to you as of first importance what to receive for our message we have to share we'll never improve on it it won't get better we can't dress it up we can't dress it down make it more traditional we can't make it more contemporary it's just for our sins that's our message young men the greatest hope in the universe is the hope that comes through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ Young men, the greatest satisfaction in the universe you will never experience on a sports field. You will never experience in a classroom. You will never experience in your job. You won't even experience it in your family. The greatest satisfaction in the universe is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the greatest and most important thing, young man, that you could ever do with your life is to believe and repent and follow. That's it. It's the greatest thing that you could ever do in your life is to believe, repent, and follow Jesus.
But that's just for young men, right? That doesn't apply to the rest of us. No, by all means, it applies to all of us. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, boys, girls, it really doesn't matter. The greatest reality in the universe is being right with God. The greatest reality in the universe is being right with God. Therefore, the greatest thing that we could ever do with our life is to believe, repent, and follow Jesus. So, so if that's the greatest thing, then, then really we only have one more thing to say, right? Belief. Repent. Follow. Be sensible. Be saved. And be free. Be free. Let's pray.